Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm your host, Dylan Matthews, and today we are traveling back in time. That's right, folks. The Weeds Time Machine is back. Weeds Time Machine. In the beginning, there was energy. Without source, without destination. And then came man, who took coal and burned it for heat. Okay, maybe not that far back. Only about 50 years or so. It's the end of the 60s, a decade of profound social and political change. In the beginning of the 70s, another decade of profound change. Really, there's just a lot going on. A wide range of social movements, from black power to women's liberation to Stonewall and the beginnings of gay liberation, are gaining ground. But the president is Richard Nixon. I, Richard Billhouse Nixon, do solemnly swear. He was elected in part as a reaction against those movements. And he's continuing the Vietnam War, resulting in tens of thousands of deaths every year. A president of the United States. A president of the United States. And will to the best of your ability. Another social movement that was growing rapidly at this time was environmentalism. Things were getting really bad in the American environment. More Americans were driving high-polluting cars that still used leaded gas. And the air and water were becoming visibly dirty. The Cuyahoga River in Ohio was so polluted that it repeatedly caught on fire. And rivers, if you'll recall, are made out of water, which should not catch on fire. Some river, chocolate brown, oily, bubbling with subsurface gases, it oozes rather than flows. Anyone who falls into the Cuyahoga does not drown, Cleveland citizens joke grimly, he decays. So here we are. It's January 22nd, 1970, and President Richard Nixon, who is so hostile to most 60s social movements, makes a surprising announcement. He uses his State of the Union address to embrace environmental protection. The great question of the 70s is, shall we surrender to our surroundings, or shall we make our peace with nature 
and begin to make reparations for the damage we have done to our air, to our land, and to our water. And Nixon actually does several things to address environmental issues in 1970 alone, like signing the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA. He issues various regulatory executive orders, and he establishes the Environmental Protection Agency by the end of the year. But today, we're talking about one of the most famous policies of 1970, the Clean Air Act. It's a landmark piece of environmental legislation that laid the groundwork for nationwide air quality standards and other anti-pollution regulations. Stepping into the weeds time machine with me today are regular co-host Dara Lind. It's good to be back in the time machine. And our special guest, Dr. Maureen Cropper. Thanks for inviting me. Dr. Cropper, or Maureen as she prefers to be called, is a distinguished university professor at the University of Maryland. Her work specializes in the economics of environmental policy and regulations. And she's also the co-author of today's white paper, which is called Looking Back at 50 Years of the Clean Air Act. We are thrilled to have Maureen join us today and help us understand the significance of this landmark policy. So, uh, Maureen, we just heard about some of the social and political changes that were happening in the U.S. at the end of the 60s, but our pollution problem was getting pretty bad long before that. Can you walk us through what the situation was in the 1950s and 60s sort of leading up to, to this policy? Sure. Um, I can go do better than that. I can go back to the 40s. <laughs> so in the 1940s in Pittsburgh, you had to put your headlights on at 11 o'clock in the morning in order to drive down the street. Many men had to change shirts twice a day. It was dark in the middle of the afternoon. Every building in town was ugly with grime. What people were seeing was particulate matter. Pittsburgh was steel city, and a lot of coal was being burned to produce steel. In 1948, in Donora, Pennsylvania, which is about 30 miles south of Pittsburgh, in October, there was a temperature inversion, and emissions from a zinc plant, this included sulfur dioxide, oxides of nitrogen, hydrogen sulfide, these were trapped in the atmosphere for five days, 20 people died immediately, and 6,000 were hospitalized. This is in a town of 14,000 people. Eventually, 50 people died as a result of this episode. So it's these sorts of things that helped to trigger the 1955 Air Pollution Control Act in the U.S., which provided funds for air pollution research. And in 1963, the Clean Air Act of 63 gave the federal government regulatory authority over air pollution and established control for air pollution within the U.S. Public Health Service. Yeah, that, that is one important nuance here, that the 1970 bill is technically the Clean Air Act Amendments Bill of 1970. It's, it's strengthening this, this foundation that was laid in 1963. When we talked about this earlier, you were also explaining to me that there was a lot of sort of state action to try to get this problem under control before 1970. What, what did that kind of look like? So in Pittsburgh, there was really a huge reduction in particulates, about 50% between the 40s and the 60s. There were reductions in New York City. States, including California, which also passed an air pollution control bill back in 1947, states did realize that this was a problem. And so 
there definitely were, at least in certain places in the U.S., declining air pollution trends before 1970. But there was still a lot to be done. Something I'm curious about in kind of looking at this unfolding history is that it's happening on two tracks, right? And both the federal government and state governments appear to recognize that there's some role for them in solving this problem. And, you know, obviously air pollution is like the most classic of all collective action problems mm-hmm. um, for, you know, reasons that are pretty obvious to anyone who's ever breathed air. But I'm interested in kind of how that played out, that the federal government wasn't saying, well, the states are already on it. And at the same time, the states weren't saying, well, this is this has to be a collective problem and therefore we shouldn't be trying to pass state bills because we can't do it alone. So one of the issues here is that air pollution travels. Um, (laughs) So it's wonderful, you know, in a large state like California that they can tackle air pollution problems within in the state borders. But even California has to worry about pollution coming from neighboring states. And that becomes a real problem when you look at the eastern U.S. And so the need for federal regulation really does come from the fact that air pollution crosses borders. If you were simply to allow states to do it, you might expect an outcome where there would be really stringent regulations in the middle of a state but you might you might want to have your polluting sources actually locate on the state border upwind of the next state. And so, um, so that is really why you need something done at the federal level. But then, of course, you also need states to actually monitor and enforce regulations, which is what happened under the 1970 Clean Air Act. I wanted to talk a bit about some of the like specific kinds of pollution that we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned particulate matter. Like, what physically is that? What what do what do we mean when we talk about particulate matter? So particulate matter is literally anything suspended in the air. But we think about, for example, when coal is burned or cement is manufactured, particles will be distributed into the air. Particulate matter also comes when you have gaseous pollutants like nitrogen oxides, which come out of motor vehicles as well as factories, um, or sulfur dioxide, which used to come out in great quantities (laughs) from power plants. Those gaseous pollutants react with ammonia in the air, and that forms fine particles. So particulate matter is coming both directly from industrial processes and burning of fossil fuels, but it's also coming from what we call secondary particle formation. And, you know, to be honest with you, of all the ambient pollution that we worry about, particulate matter has been linked very closely to cardiovascular and respiratory illness, premature mortality, huge impacts there. One of the constituents of particulate matter is lead. Mm -hmm. And so back in the 1970s and before, actually into the 80s, People's biggest source of lead exposure in the U.S. was actually ambient lead coming out of the tailpipes of gasoline-powered vehicles that used leaded gasoline. So it's a constituent of particulate matter, but as we all know, it has tremendous negative impacts on brain development in children, personality development, can reduce IQ, and so forth. You mentioned earlier that the preliminary Clean Air Act, you know, 
establish new avenues for research and that ultimately this was seen as as under the purview of the public health service. How much of these health impacts that you've been talking about were known at the time? And, you know, if if that research was still kind of coming together, how was it immediately understood as like not just a quality of life issue or an ecological issue, but specifically as a public health issue? There were these episodes and people could see sort of the immediate effects, you know, people dying immediately. Mm -hmm. In terms of the epidemiological literature, which has really spurred, I would say, amendments to the, to the 1970 mm -hmm. Clean Air Act, um, a lot of that research really didn't get going and wasn't published until the mid-90s when work by Arden Pope and colleagues, Doug Dockery and colleagues, was published. Mm -hmm. So, those studies really actually followed, so to speak, the Clean Air Act. What was used really to justify strengthening the Clean Air Act was these studies that, as I said, really didn't come out until the late 1990s. And right now in, in 2022, when we talk about emissions and, and pollutants, we're often talking about carbon dioxide, methane, sort of mm. greenhouse gases. That was less part of the conversation as as the Clean Air Act was being discussed and debated, right? Originally, that was not really the motivating force. Certainly, you could have co-benefits in reducing carbon dioxide if you reduced reliance on coal, switched from coal to natural gas, and so forth. But that really was not the motivating force behind the 1970 Clean Air Acts or the 1977. So tell us a bit about sort of where where the politics of clean air was as this bill comes along. Uh, you have Richard Nixon as president. We think of him as, as pretty conservative and, and very skeptical of, of government. You see the first Earth Day. Sort of what are some of the political factors that, that lead into this uh, becoming a national policy? Well, I'm not an expert on the politics. But sure. I would say that when you see you know, over 20 million people protesting on Earth Day in 1970, you certainly – Think of this having political ramifications. Earth Day demonstrations began in practically every city and town in the United States this morning, the first massive nationwide protest against the pollution of the environment. And the outcry uh, lo and behold, President Nixon does issue an executive order in the summer of, of 1970. The situation w was sufficiently concerning. It was concerning also about water pollution as well as air pollution that something indeed had to be done. The time was ripe. Part of why Nixon helping create the EPA and pass the Clean Air Act amendments was so strange is he, he was often kind of hostile to, to hippies or <laughs> what he, he viewed as, as sort of extreme environmentalists. Like 1970, you saw the first Earth Day, and he was, he was pretty hostile to it. Mr. Nixon this day also avoided any participation. The White House attitude toward Earth Day was one of benign neglect. The president's personal posture was one of detachment. Right. I mean, Nixon runs and wins in 1968 on hippie-punching backlash, uh, you know, especially with regard to the kind of crime and disorder fears, but also kind of anti-anti-war stuff. And in our current understanding of the 60s, the birth of the environmental movement is really tied into all of that kind of youth politics and hippie unrest. And, you know, what Maureen's been talking about in terms of the 
acute events that have sharpened political interest in doing something about air pollution are really a useful way to understand this, that this isn't like successful lobbying on the part of, you know, Greenpeace for 20 (laughs) years, but rather, you know, people who had not previously perceived this as being a politicized issue, seeing it as something that government ought to take care of. And because it hadn't yet been politically polarized, Nixon was able to step in and say, yes, this is a thing that government can do. Last week, the Harris poll revealed that the number one issue on the minds of most Americans today is the sad state of the environment. It has become almost a beneficent national obsession. Well, Congress has reflected the mood by passing a stringent anti-pollution law, and today the president signed it. I think that 1970 will be known as the year of the beginning in which we really began to move on the problems of clean air and clean water and open spaces for the future generations of America. I think 1971... We're going to take a quick break, uh, but when we come back, we're going to talk about what the actual policy entailed and what enforcement of, of the Clean Air Act looked like. So stay with us. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. Okay, we are back with Maureen Cropper talking about the Clean Air Act of 1970. What was actually in the 1970 amendments to the Clean Air Act? What what did it do to amp up the 1963 Act and, and what sort of new requirements were put in place? One of the most important provisions was setting national ambient air quality standards. So these were set for PM, for SO2, NOx, lead, ozone, and carbon monoxide. And 
what was going to be done to enforce these was to say to states, you have to come up with implementation plans that will actually make your state um, in attainment with these standards. At first, what was done was to actually characterize air quality control regions. There were 247 of them. There still are. And to determine whether they were in attainment or out of attainment. And states had to issue emission standards for power plants and for factories in non-attainment areas to tell them, look, you've got to reduce your emissions. They had to guarantee that in attainment areas, indeed, you would stay in attainment. So the task was really left to the states. They had to come up with these plans by May of 1975. So that's a big part of the um, 1970 Clean Air Act amendments. In terms of Motor vehicles, the idea was that the federal government would set uniform standards for the entire country for new vehicles, and the goal originally was to reduce NOx, carbon monoxide, and hydrocarbons 90% by 1976. That didn't happen. These deadlines were extended. Um, In the case of carbon monoxide and hydrocarbons, they were extended to 1983 and for NOx to 1985. Another thing that did happen in terms of regulations issued under the 1970 Clean Air Act amendments was the phasing out of lead and gasoline. So there was a phase-down rule issued in 1973. It was defended in the courts, upheld by the courts um, in 76, and the final rule was issued in 1980. There were also what are called new source performance standards. So standards that say, gosh, if you are starting uh, to construct a factory, it has to obey more stringent standards than existing existing factories. So I think those were all really important features of the 1970 Act. So because the kind of geographical enforcement of this is is such an important component with the difference between attainment and non-attainment areas. Can you talk a little bit about how those were determined and what the, you know, what the expectation was for setting these two levels of designation? It was difficult to set non-attainment status because in terms of monitors that existed back in 1970, I mean, for particulate matter, I think there were actually, I think I'm correct, fewer than a thousand counties that actually had particulate monitors in them. So here you are determining whether you're in attainment with these ambient standards, and you have to rely a lot, frankly, on the air quality modeling. But the idea of declaring you know, an air quality region and by extension a county out of attainment was that you know implicitly there were going to be st- more stringent regulations on those counties. And I must say, you know, when we look at the impacts of the Clean Air Act what economists do is to say, okay, regulations had to be more stringent in non-attainment counties. We're going to treat that as an exogenous regulation imposed on these counties so that we can actually view these as the treated counties in terms of regulation and the attainment counties as the controls, the ones that have already um, achieved the NACs. And that that uh, makes it nice for economists trying to figure out effects <laughs> later. Exactly, right. <laughs> right. You need some geographic variation in regulation in order you know, to study its effect using modern uh, <laughs> quasi-experimental methods. Yes, exactly. And and this does point at something important, which is that 
as evidenced by the 1970 bill actually being a set of amendments, this is kind of a, a, an evolving policy that you have more amendments in 1977 with mm-hmm. making it county by county. In 1990, you have an acid rain program. Tell me a bit of that history and sort of how it evolved through congressional action after 1970. What I would say spurred the 77 amendments was the realization that there were a lot of areas that were not in attainment with the ambient standards. One of the key features of the 77 amendments was actually to say, look, if you're a plant and you want to locate in a non-attainment county, you're actually going to have to buy permits from plants that already operate in that county so that total emissions are not going to increase. So that actually began with the 77 amendments And also, if you're going to locate in that county, you're going to have to use what we call the LAER, the lowest achievable emission rate, for the process that you're engaged in. So there are much more stringent end-of-pipe standards for um, firms that are in non-attainment counties, plus there is this this need um, to actually buy permits from existing firms. Another really important part of that, of the 77 amendments was to say, okay, for power plants, we have new source performance standards that are going to require a percentage reduction in your sulfur dioxide emissions, which effectively you can achieve only by putting a scrubber of flue gas desulfurization unit on the plant. So you really um, are requiring the scrubbing of sulfur dioxide emissions from power plants um, in because of the 77 amendments. You know, moving on to the 1990 amendments, there were still, of course, emissions from power plants in 1990, um, something like 15 million tons of SO2 coming out of coal-fired power plants. So the idea there was, okay, let's try to reduce the cost of regulation by starting a pollution permit market. Instead of saying to each power plant, you can emit no more than, let's say, 1.2 pounds of SO2 for every million BTUs of heat input, we're going to give permits to each plant. If you're able to reduce your emissions cheaply, so let's say you're a plant located closer to the Powder River Basin in Wyoming where there's low sulfur coal, then you're going to reduce your emissions below the number of permits you have, you're going to sell those permits to power plants in the east that would find it much more expensive to transport coal from the Powder River Basin. This is going to reduce the cost, at least the aggregate cost, of reducing SO2 emissions compared to having a uniform performance standard. So this really was the beginning of the market-based approach to regulation and This was also followed also in the Knox budget program, which we might get to, which was to reduce NOx emissions um, from power plants. So that is a big part, I think, of the 1990 um, amendments and one that really people, especially economists, uh, point to. So, yeah, let's talk about about NOx since it seems like an important part of this. And and as you say, sort of the approach toward NOx emissions – Involved a degree of, of cap and trade, um, mm-hmm. which uh, which became a really important model for for all kinds of environmental stuff. So, mm-hmm. what is NOx? What does it do? And and sort of how did how was 
the EPA's and the Clean Air Act's approach to it different from the way they'd been doing environmental policy up to that point? Okay, well, NOx are really produced whenever you're burning fossil fuel. Even by the year 2000, you're still getting the bulk, and I mean like maybe 80% of NOx coming out of motor vehicles. But the idea in the NOx budget program was, okay, we will have a permit trading system. This is going to involve 19 states in the eastern U.S. And instead of, once again, having a uniform performance standard, we will allow them to try to trade the right to emit NOx. And there are studies that have indeed shown that the NOx budget program was very successful in reducing emissions you know, compared to power plants, because they were the main, um, you know, emitters that were being targeted here in states that weren't part of the NOx budget program. And also by comparing winter emissions and summer emissions, because the idea was to reduce these NOx emissions in the summer to reduce ozone. So an excellent study by Deshen Shapiro and Greenstone actually shows like a 40% reduction in NOx emissions as a result of the NOx budget program. But the idea is also that this was, you know, a cheaper way of reducing the emissions than simply having a uniform performance standard. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, Maureen's new white paper with her colleagues on the effects of the Clean Air Act, um, what we know about its effect on health and our current environment, and what we don't know and still need to learn. Uh, So stay with us. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive, it kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com code WEEDS to save up to $400. Hydro.com code WEEDS. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. All right. Uh, so our white paper this week, which we were discussing with, with one of its authors and a rare privilege, is titled Looking Back at 50 Years of the Clean Air Act by Marine Cropper, Joseph Aldi, Maximilian Offhammer, Arthur Frost, and Richard Morgenstern. Marine, what were you hoping to, to do with this, this paper? What, what kind of questions were you trying to answer or summarize uh, in, in doing this? Well, I would say we had three main questions. The first one was, Was there really causal evidence that the Clean Air Act was responsible for these huge declines in ambient air pollution that we've observed since the the 1970s? 
Then we wanted to say, okay, what is the evidence for, in particular, health benefits associated with the Clean Air Act? What can we really say in a causal way as opposed to associations that have been established, although convincing associations, but associations that have been established by epidemiologists? And then the third question had to do with costs. So there's both the issue of what did, you know, the Clean Air Act and its amendments cost, but also, you know, to what extent were these market-based approaches really successful in reducing costs? And what were, in some sense, perhaps the unintended costs? I mean, were there job losses that occurred as a result of the Clean Air Act? Did it change the location of industry? Did it cause workers to lose significant you know, amounts of income? Can we nerd out a little bit on like how what a properly causal study in this space looks like? Because obviously air pollution is very diffuse. Also, obviously, you know, we're, t- we're trying to compare to the counterfactual of if, you know, if right. a law hadn't been there passed. There was none, yeah, right. exactly. Um, yeah. And of course, there are also these, you know, there's already some estimates that are done, you know, in the ex-ante studies mm-hmm. that the right. EPA had to do, you know, before issuing any regulations about what they expected. So like, What's kind of the gold standard for research that you would look to and say, this is really isolating the impact of this particular regulation? Okay. Well, as I mentioned earlier, we have counties that have been labeled non-attainment counties and counties that have been labeled attainment counties. So if we really think of the Clean Air Act as being the, the force behind non-attainment status, which it was— then suppose we look at the difference in, let's say, particulate, ambient particulate levels in a non-attainment county before the Clean Air Act and after. We look at that change, and we actually compute the similar change for the attainment county. If the change in the non-attainment county is larger than in the attainment county, we can say, assuming that the counties really looked the same (laughs) back in the past, that the Clean Air Act resulted in this greater reduction. It's a situation where you need both the treated counties, which are the non-attainment ones, the controls, and you need data from before the Clean Air Act and after the Clean Air Act. So, for example, to ask the question, you know, did the Clean Air Act reduce particulate matter, there's evidence that during the 70 to 80 decade, there was there were reductions that were, you know, 11 to 12 percent higher in non-attainment counties than attainment counties. There were studies done when people focused more on on smaller particles, PM10, between 1990 and 2000. There was evidence there of similar declines. There were studies that looked at the impact on ozone, same same sorts of studies showing reductions of about 8% in high ozone days after the 1977 Clean Air Act amendments in non-attainment counties, 8% greater uh, reductions in these high ozone days in non-attainment counties than in attainment counties. And actually under the Knox budget program, something like a 35% reduction in high ozone days in the counties that were part of the Knox budget program, that were treated, as it were, by the Knox budget program. So that really is the evidence we have of the Clean Air Act in a causal way reducing air pollution. Once you've established that, one way of of tackling the health effects is to say, okay, I have this causal reduction in ambient concentrations, so if I have some 
causal studies of the effects of PM on mortality, then I can link it to the Clean Air Act. Now, there are also studies that actually look directly at the impact of the Clean Air Act on health. So the study by Deshan Greenstone and Shapiro, I should put them in the alphabetical <laughs> order that we do in economics, what they did in that study was actually to look at the impact of the Knox budget program on summer mortality, okay, because this was, you know, geared at, at uh, reducing emissions in the summer. They found reductions of about 2,500 deaths per year for the years that that program operated, which was 2003 to 2008, and also a reduction in medical expenditures of about $800 million a year. So here was something where you're directly looking at the impact of, of this program in areas where it didn't, and directly establishing a link. There's also a recent study that is looking at reductions in PM 2.5 between 2004 and 2013 uh, by Nick Kumanoff and co-authors that estimates that a one microgram per cubic meter reduction in PM 2.5 over that period reduced cases of dementia by about 180,000 per year. So, you know, those are studies where you're directly linking the Clean Air Act with the non-attainment versus or the treated versus controls and finding, you know, significant health effects. So it seems overall like huge improvements in, in environmental quality, huge improvements in health, but there are some nuances here. Are there, there are areas where the bill seemed to fall short or, or sort of didn't live up to its potential for, for certain reasons? So, I mean, in the paper, we do look at regulations to reduce the volatility of gasoline, so reformulated gasoline regulations under the 1990 amendments. And the point there, and this is largely due to work by, by Max Alfhammer and Ryan Kellogg, the point there is that there was a lot of flexibility given to refiners, depending on what state they were located in, in reducing what was being taken out of – well, taking things out of gasoline to reduce its volatility – and so when it was possible to take out something that was cheap to remove but didn't necessarily have a big impact on ozone, that's what happened. In California, where the law was very prescriptive and said you've got to reduce benzene and gasoline, the impacts were much greater in terms of reducing ozone. So I suppose, you know, one could say, okay, the, the lesson to be learned there is that sometimes you can give, you know, too much freedom in terms of your regulation – you need to think about exactly, you know, how people who are regulated will respond to it, and maybe you do have to be a little more prescriptive. I think skeptics of the bill might be interested in the economic cost, that, mm -hmm. that this, is, this is not a spending program primarily. This is the government telling uh, manufacturers what they can and can't mm -hmm. do with their plants, what they can and can't do with their cars. And the criticism of all legislation of that is always, this will cost jobs, this will, will reduce economic output. What do we know about, about those effects? There is a very important paper by Michael Greenstone that was published, I believe, in 2002 that looked at the impact on manufacturing employment of the Clean Air Act going really from, well, from 72 to 87. So the effect of the 70 Act and, and the 77 Amendments. And what he found was that there was a flow of jobs <laughs> Well, I shouldn't say a flow of jobs. There was a reduction in jobs in non-attainment counties, a reduction in manufacturing jobs. And actually, over that 15-year period, it's something like 600,000 jobs, which is a lot of jobs. 
now you need to you know, remember that 17 million people were working in manufacturing back in those days. So it's a lot of jobs. It maybe isn't a huge percent, but it is a situation where we don't really know, actually, whether those jobs went to the attainment counties. We have some evidence that new plants um, in very heavily polluting industries like organic chemicals actually were more likely to locate in attainment counties after the 1977 Clean Air Act amendments, given all we said about that early, about them earlier. So it's possible that some of these jobs went to attainment counties and people were able to move. But you really worry about the impact on earnings, especially if people do have to move and change jobs, change industries, for example. So a study that came out in, I think it was in 2013, by Reed Walker actually followed workers in four states There were some workers who were in firms that weren't being regulated under the 1990 amendments and some that were. And so for workers that had to actually change firms and especially industries, they suffered, he estimated, over like a nine-year period, earnings losses that were equal to a year's wages before the regulation took effect. So that's, you know, it's a significant impact. So there, you know, there is evidence that there were impacts on jobs and in some cases certainly on worker earnings. It makes you, you know, wonder what could be do what could be done rather or what could have been done to really, you know, ameliorate these effects. You know, at the end of of Reed's paper, he does say, well, we do have to compare this these well, significant losses on certain groups of people to health benefits. Well, health benefits that they could have enjoyed, but of course that society as a whole enjoyed. But there's no question that there certainly were these impacts and impacts of polluting firms moving, not necessarily moving, but locating anew in um, attainment counties. You know, I think that this does raise a question about uniformity of standards. I think it also goes some way to explaining the continued potency of the framing of environmental regulation as a environment versus jobs issue, which like right now, the people who are pushing that like are not labor, they're industry. And as you know, as we in our recent podcast with Rob Meyer discussed like that, you know, that that's usually the political framing, but it usually masks a much more nuanced reality. But if you think about like the correlation between the 1970 and 1977 amendments and the broader deindustrialization of the Rust Belt during mm-hmm. that period, which obviously is multi-causal. Mm-hmm. And if you think about what someone who was on the sharp side of that, who got laid off, would be willing to blame, probably less likely their employer or their union than this totally exogenous <laughs> thing yeah. that came in, um, that it does go some way to explaining why this is still such a potent fear even though there has been so much effort put in in the 21st century to figuring out ways for the federal government to craft environmental bills that will also be jobs bills, that that is mm-hmm. that you know the the kind of implicit conflict between those two really can be. You can see why you know these costs would have been so politically traumatic. Right. Absolutely. I mean, the other thing is that at least among studies that we looked at. I mean, the flip side of this is to say, well, what kind of job creation followed as a result of the Clean Air Act amendments? And in terms of that, to be honest with you, (laughs) I I don't know if there is a a huge literature. 
It's certainly the case that in regulatory impact analyses that the government does, you know, ex ante, the emphasis on looking at the job impacts has been, you know, huge since 2005 or so. So it's, it really has – it has shown a light on these issues. Um, but as I say, it also does go both ways. And in terms of trying to say, well, here are the, the positive job impacts, mm-hmm. um, that, it seems to me, should be examined also. So we've made a huge amount of progress on air pollution. We don't have the smog problems we had in the 70s. Uh, You don't have to drive with your headlights on (laughs) during the day in in Pittsburgh. Um, (laughs) Your your car also probably decides when they're on or off. Uh, Exactly. Yes. (laughs) uh, Right. A lot fewer choices to make there. (laughs) Um, But – what what's left to be done? Like the the air quality problem is is not a hundred percent solved. It's it's certainly not solved internationally. But but looking at what it's accomplished and and where things are now, what are some of the big holes uh, that still need to be plugged or, or places where we could still use a, a good deal of progress? Well, I mean, if you were asking this question to epidemiologists, I and if you look at, at the as I say the recent study by Francesca. Domenici and colleagues, the emphasis there is actually on what are the health effects, even though we're down, many of us are down below an annual average PM 2.5 of 12 micrograms per cubic meter. One thing that's happened actually in the epidemiological literature, which does have to do with the effects in other countries like India and China, is the notion that the dose response function between air pollution and risk of death is concave. So you're having actually the the largest marginal effects at low levels of pollution, and then these actually sort of taper off, which explains why in spite of, you know, huge levels of particulate matter in uh, cities in India, everyone isn't dying of air pollution. (laughs) Um, So I think if you were to ask colleagues at the Harvard School of Public Health, they would say there are still questions about whether you want to tighten standards below the current standards, I mean, make the the ambient standards greater. I mean, in terms of where non-attainment is now, of course, there's still considerable non-attainment with regard to ozone. So that's been a very um, recalcitrant problem. There are certainly issues and and I would say important environmental justice issues with regard to pollution, which of course have really come to the fore. So you still, you know, especially with regard to hazardous air pollutants have, you know, Cancer Alley and and other broad-based concerns of people being, you know, exposed to mercury from power plants and so forth. So there are environmental justice issues, although there has been research into that. So Janet Curry, Reed Walker, and John Voorhees have looked at actually um, ambient concentrations, gosh, I think going back to uh, the year 2000 and looking at how people in different racial and ethnic groups have been exposed over time and how actually the exposure levels for whites versus non-whites have actually gone down over time, part of which can be attributed to the Clean Air Act. But clearly there are still important environmental justice issues, and especially for, you know, what we would call hazardous air pollutants, benzene, formaldehyde, and so forth. Absolutely. 
Well, thank you so much uh, to Dr. Maureen Cropper for, for walking us through some of the history of, of the Clean Air Act and, and jumping in the time machine with us. Well, thank you for asking me. Thank you so much to Dr. Maureen Cropper for being here with us. Thank you so much to Dara for being on the panel. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Uh, Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts. And I am your host, Dylan Matthews. We're going to take a break from panel episodes next week, but do not worry. I will be interviewing author and economist Chris Blattman about his new book, Why We Fight. So stay tuned. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month, every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com.